Hey, everyone, and welcome to the State of the Art Podcast with me, your host, Ethan Appleby. I'm very excited to bring you along as I dive into conversations with amazing people who are at the intersection of art and technology. Each week, you'll hear a different angle about how tech is bringing radical change in the way all of us interact with art. We have on artists to first-time collectors, as well as CEOs from some of the top digital art companies. We'll also look at the effects social media sites and crowdsourcing platforms are having on the art world and explore how other creative industries, such as music and fashion, were democratized using technology. So before we get started, I want to ask, did you catch our earlier episode with Patreon, the site that gets creators paid by running a membership business for their fans? Look, we liked it so much and we're so inspired that we created our own Patreon page. Really, we did it for two reasons. One, it lets us connect with you, our fans and listeners. And two, it helps us continue to make great content, get on better speakers, and find creative ways to continue this conversation with art and tech. So look, you can pledge as little as a dollar and become one of our patrons. To do so, check out patreon.com slash state of the art. In this episode, I'm excited to welcome Scott Belsky. Scott's an entrepreneur, author, and investor who founded Behance and is currently Adobe's chief product officer and executive vice president of the Creative Cloud. Scott's perhaps best known for co-founding the online portfolio platform Behance, whose mission was to organize the creative world and connect the best talent to the best opportunities. His work focuses on empowering creativity by improving the way we interact with creative tools and increasing connectivity and inclusivity in the creative world. Today, I'm excited to talk to Scott about the starving artist stereotype, how to survive what he calls the brutal middle portion of the creative process, and what excites him about new technology like AR and VR. So please allow me to welcome today's guest, Scott Belsky. Scott, it's great to have you on uh, on the State of the Art podcast. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. I um I I've, I've never done this before, but I want to start off with a, a short, funny story I found um, about one of your the goals that you set at Behance, and you guys said that you had like fun goals. What did you call them? You had a term for it. Gosh, you mean like the way we short circuited ourselves to keep working when we felt like there was no end in sight? That stuff. That stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, but there's a name though. I forgot it. I don't know. I don't even. I think we had these things called slap bats. Slap bats. Yeah. That was it. One of the the ones I loved was uh, when you Googled Behance that it didn't auto correct it to enhance. Yeah, I mean, when you started when you start a company with a made up word, yeah, um, Google inevitably thinks you're a mistake until you actually have enough. SEO and prominence online to uh, to be a uh, you know a correct rather than an invalid search. Yeah, and so that was one of those early things where I said, okay, we may not have revenue anytime soon, we may not be known globally anytime soon, but let's at least not be a mistake. Yeah, let's like work towards that. And that was one of those short term rewards that our team could orient towards and keep checking and keep kind of joking around about it to the point where. You know, one day we did the search and we came up. Yeah, and it was like, oh my goodness! You know, Google, uh, Google things were real, uh, and then uh, and then you know, it, it, Beyonce did become popular a couple of years later, and we lost that again for a minute. There oh. and we came back, but but it was. I mean, the point is, is that when you are navigating the middle of a bold creative project or venture of any kind, 
you have to create your own rewards when there aren't any. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we say, oh, well, we're above this. You know, we don't need those rewards. We can just be motivated by this long-term vision for what we want to achieve in five plus years. But I actually don't think human beings are really able to do that. Yeah. I actually think that it may be that ancestral part of ourselves back from, you know, the early 17 centuries or whatever, when, when the uh, life expectancy, I think was 25 and even lower before that, when life was so short, we would never commit five to 10 years to do something. And so I think we're in some ways hardwired towards short-term rewards. And in order to really accomplish something bold over time, you've got to trick yourself into doing so. Yeah. Well, I want to, I want to dive into, you know, your career and all you've done in the creative space, but you have done so much. I mean, you've been such a great ambassador and pushing people forward and, and enabling creators. Where did it come from? Like, <laughs> it started from a dose of frustration, I think. Yeah. I, uh, I've always been um, kind of merging or reconciling a creative side and yeah. an organization side of myself. I love having things organized and making progress on things. I get very frustrated with anything that seems to be uncertain. And uh, maybe to an unhealthy extent. And at the same time, I have always been a tinkerer. I've always been a builder. I spent much of my childhood in the basement just playing with stuff, making stuff. And so later on, that manifested in having a major in business and design, you know, and literally an undergrad spending time in both business and economics classes and design classes. And uh, and then later on, having friends who were in the creative world who were some of the most disorganized people I knew and being frustrated with them and being frustrated with their industries and wanting to do something about it. Yeah. Do you remember, was there like a moment that, you know, you're trying to buy a piece from your friend or something that, you know, just sort of like click like, okay, we need to do something about this or that you sort of had this initial idea of this is a direction that I want to really go and, and help? Well, I think it was more so seeing very talented friends that just couldn't get their shit together yeah, and, uh, and wanting to be their coach in some ways and saying, you're not charging enough, or you should at least tell your clients what they're going to charge them. You should take money in advance. You should get a down payment. You should uh, start doing more commercial work. Why do you think you're above it? It's great for you. And, and, uh, and it was always inspired when I'd hear stories uh, from designers or artists who learned to do this for themselves. I remember John Maeda, who's one of my mentors um, and uh, was president of RISD and is a designer by background. I remember when he was talking about his, I believe, an internship he had with Paul Rand, who's really one of the most famous uh, designers of the modern, or, you know, of the recent days, uh, who kind of at one point towards the end of his internship, I believe it was, told John, like, I have some very important advice for you. And I remember, you know, John sort of telling me the story being like, you know, he was shaken with like, what am I going to hear? This is going to be so important and so profound. And Paul ran, leaned into him and said, like, go make money, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. how it was such a letdown, you know, you're such an idealistic designer and you, when you're young and you just want to do things for what you think are all the right reasons. And here is this man telling him, this idol telling him, like, go make money so you can make great art. You know, go take care of yourself so you can take care of the world, whatever you want to frame it. But that was his interpretation of it. Yeah. Why is it that you think creators, are they born idealistic and that's what makes them a creator or vice versa? Why do you think they have that sort of um, almost mythos around them and needing to be so idealistic? I think creative people are inherently 
motivated by something in their mind's eye that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And that's what's great. I think that they are also motivated by a sense of inner struggle. And whether it be insecurity or some desire to overcome something in the past. I mean, there probably are books that can be written about the, the role of conflict and creativity. But the point is, is that a perfectly peaceful and um, non-eventful life is no recipe, you know, for for creative genius. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that that uh, you know is is just kind of sets you off on your creative journey. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, and 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 I just whenever I face some form of adversity, it's become sort of my instinct with it is oh maybe this is also some forcing function for creativity. Mm-hmm. So what? So where did you go from from sort of this idea that you had? You wanted to help. You ended up starting Behance. Was there any steps before that? And sort of have you gotten? Well, Behance was started uh, maybe four or five years out of college. Yeah. Um, and before that, I was working kind of a mundane corporate job on Wall Street. You were a banker. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was never in a banking function. Okay. I had a kind of finance ish function for the first year and a half, and then I was in this actually really cool role in organizational development and, and leadership development, succession planning, that kind of stuff. So not finance related, but organization related. Got it. And I was one of the only people on my team using Adobe Illustrator to help show rather than tell some of the strategies we were devising and some of the programs we were developing. And I think I, you know, I didn't know the terminology at the time, but part of it was design thinking. Part mm. of it was information design. And part of it was actually my education or the beginning of my education in product design in uh in progressive disclosure of information and and uh and in user journey and you know all of those kind of core tenets of product design were things that I was always playing with and doing uh, and and trying to understand just not formally. Yeah. So so from there you created Behance and then you went on um in into venture for a little while and, and so what how was that transition? Yeah, well, you know, Behance was a Seven plus year journey. Yeah. Really 10 years. It was five years as a bootstrap company, two years as a venture back company, three years integrating it into Adobe and also taking on other responsibilities around the company. Yeah. So uh, it's funny to like put a neat bow around that because it was a very messy and wild and uh, and challenging adventure yeah. from start to finish. You talk about the creative curve. Yeah. And well, that- and so enduring and optimizing, you know, is is really what the middle of a, of a journey is all about yeah. and kind of coming up the curve of building something of value. Um, and I do think it gets too little attention these days or always. Yeah. <laughs> we can talk about that, but you asked about the, the, uh, evolution of being an entrepreneur and venture yeah. or as an investor. And, uh, it was just something that I felt I wanted to, uh, to try. Um, I had always been working with entrepreneurs as, uh, as a product advisor and as a, Uh, or a board member and as an investor in many cases. And I felt like, well, if everyone's telling me I should do this full time, maybe I should. Mm -hmm. And I think I learned a very valuable lesson in life, which is just because people are telling you you'd be good at something doesn't mean you're going to enjoy it. Yeah. And it kind of took me being a full-time investor, not working with the team anymore, not building a product anymore to realize how much I missed it. Yeah. And so that, and that, and then that brought you back into your current role. What are the things, I mean, you talk about these these different um, sort of human tendencies, um, which I really like. You know, how did you sort of realize those? Was it was it over those 10 years or is that something like a framework that you kind of went into, into Behance with? 
Well, I think with having worked now with so many different consumer-facing products and some professional-facing products, obviously, with the creative tools that, that I oversee now and have before, I've come to believe that product is really much more human than we typically make it. Mm-hmm. We like to over-intellectualize product decisions and what we want to communicate to users, and we get all cerebral and strategic when, in fact, we just have to ground ourselves with what a person, it doesn't matter whether they're a consumer with a consumer app or a random person in a big company using a big enterprise application. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, they are a person who wants to look good to their boss or feel better about themselves. They want to have good vanity metrics so they know that they're looking better to their friends. They want to have more security about how they're how they're doing things and optionality in life, but not too many options because it's hard to decide. You know, these are all kind of basic human tendencies that we all come to our life with in every decision we make on a daily basis. And it's uh and and they should be used when we are building products and grounding the decisions that we're making, specifically when it relates to things like the first mile of a product experience. How do you appeal to a customer if you are a developer-facing product. What do developers and engineers like? They like to do more with less effort. They mm-hmm. want to do something with two lines of code. You know, These are the things we have to make as principles of our products to appeal and engage those in customers or retain them mm-hmm. over time. And, uh, and so I have really always tried as a, uh, as a product builder and an advisor to others to just kind of bring those to the surface, constantly ground ourselves with humanity in some ways. Yeah. I mean, a lot of what you talk about is is sort of the creativity in an organizational uh, capacity. I mean, when you were first starting off with Bands, you had a co-founder, there was two of you. You know, if you think about an individual designer, an artist, I mean, what is there advice or frameworks that you use or that you give to help them sort of, you know, stay organized and, and you know, and push themselves in ways that, you know, they, they don't have the benefit of having a large team around them to sort of balance them out? Well, when I... When I think about the challenges that an individual creative professional artist or writer um, or solo entrepreneur, uh, what what sorts of challenges they face, they're oftentimes into, into certain buckets. They're either doing too many things and spreading themselves like peanut butter and not doing one thing particularly well. Um, they uh, They include not treating themselves as a business. And really thinking about what they what their PL is essentially, yeah. how much they have to make and how much they should be spending and how they should consider the uh not only resources financially, but also time-wise. Um, make sure that they are investing in learning, um, making sure that they are getting feedback from clients and from their market. It's amazing to me how little feedback creatives actually get and or even want they want yeah when in fact feedback is gold i mean if you actually know how you're coming across to others it is an amazing level of insight into how to perform better Mm -hmm. but we typically don't want to hear it for other reasons and uh, and overcoming that alone is such a competitive advantage as a as a soloist as i like to call them people that work on their own also uh the Things that drive the careers of a soloist, like for example, um, getting referrals and 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 asking for referrals from clients, but also from other from their peers. Mm-hmm. There's there's a whole suite of things, right? And the problem with people that work on their own is that they kind of make they reinvent the wheel 
everyone reinvents the wheel for themselves. Yeah. Uh, and there needs to be an effort to have best practice sharing. And that's actually one of the reasons why I helped get this company Prefer off the ground. Mm-hmm. And Prefer was uh, is a business that's still in its very early stages, but it's a passionate team that's building a uh, a product for independent professionals to kind of start to do some of this stuff with each other. Hmm. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I interviewed the uh, CEO of Absolute Art, uh, which I had no idea had such a long history of uh, working with artists. Do you know that Absolute Vodka that no. actually started off back in the 50s and like uh, in 60s? And, and uh, you know, you had Basquiat and stuff who who was uh, yep. just carrying the bottles of vodka around. Anyways, <laughs> uh, she talks a lot about that, like the, the sort of the boring stuff. I mean, see, like even down to like a CRM or other things, like artists just keeping, you know, who who have purchased from them? Where are yeah. they? What have they bought? Like, Perhaps you created something similar to something you sold to someone else. Maybe you should just let them know yep. that, hey, I, I, you know, you, there's a piece that goes well with one that you have. And some of these very fundamental things that are, you know, sort of in the business world, we think is as fundamental. Just, you're right. Like, they they don't right. even consider. Well, they're not sexy. It's not um, sexy. Not that's what they say, the unsexy stuff. Everyone yeah. wants to worry about the sexy things. Well, and that's why I like to always kind of ground our our expectations for the impact we want to make in the world with that classic equation I talked about in my first book around creativity times organization equals impact. Yeah. And how you can have all the creativity in the world, but no organization around the ideas that you've already got and make no impact. Sort of a, it's a product, not a sum. Yeah. But if you have, if you actually compromise a little bit on finding the next best idea and constantly climbing that creativity curve and focus a little more on organization, you will make a greater impact. And there's so many examples of that throughout history. You have someone like, well, Thomas Kincaid yeah. as an artist or James Patterson. People are on the other side of the spectrum. And I'm not necessarily saying that's where you want to be. But look how prolific and successful from at least from a market reach perspective they have been. Apple. Apple, everyone always talked about Steve Jobs. But you could argue that Tim Cook, who was the COO during all of those golden years of Apple, Maybe organization was as much a competitive advantage for Apple as the ideas themselves. In fact, a lot of people would argue the ideas weren't necessarily unique. Mm-hmm. Apple just executed them better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I think that's sort of grounding for all of us. I like to call it the creative's compromise. At the end of the day, creative individuals and entities must kind of compromise an aspect of their very essence in order to be successful. And it sounds like, oh, that's not that's against my principles or I would never compromise. But in fact, that's what it takes to birth something into the world that has impact is to cut back a little bit, kill your darlings, as writers like to say, and focus a little bit more on the execution side. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate. It just continues to get reinforced, especially in the fine art world. You know, I mean, Thomas Kincaid is an example. I mean, no one in the fine art world, you know, just right. completely shits on him. And, right. But he got his work out there and he's known. And isn't that what all artists want? So you're right. Maybe you don't have to go as far as he did. Right. But, you know, I mean give him credit where it's due and, and sort of think about that. And, I, you know, in some ways, I mean, I look at the schools and, the, you know, usually schools are thought of as progressive, but especially in the arts, I mean, the fine art sculptor painter world, I mean, the, the teachers and instructor professors still push them towards this gallery model that's just broken. And furthermore, I think, you know, and I'm curious your thoughts is like, I mean, the sort of mythos around the artists, you know, that we have of it, them being almost like having this, you know, magical talent that they're born with and, and it's just theirs. And, you know, on, on, it creates a sort of mouse and elephant where both of us are, both sides are scared of each other. Uh, you know, I mean, you have the, the buyers, it's almost like inapproachable to talk to an artist or to want to purchase art. And with the artist, it kind of reinforces this idea of, um, you know, not 
well, it doesn't give them credit for the work that they put into something. I mean, yeah. I think that's that's the shortcoming, right? It's like it is not easy to be an artist. You put a lot of work in that. Um, and furthermore, though, it sort of lets them get off on this kind of starving artist, and it's okay to live, you know, idealistically. Well, I think yeah, the starting ar- artist myth that you kind of have to be living it tough and kind of always at the brink of failure to kind of wear a badge of honor and feel like you're you know, being a great artist or, I mean, I think that that's time and time again been disproven. Yeah. I think the dirty little secret is that the best artists as we, you know, and let's put parentheses around best, like how to define that is impossible, but some of the careers of artists that we really admire, those artists are great promoters of Mm themselves. They are great merchandisers of their story. They're constantly weaving a narrative for their galleries, for their patrons, you know, for their collectors or whatever else. They're actively engaged in that process and they don't admit it because it's certainly not cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it seems like it's almost disingenuous, but in fact, it's part of the story. I mean, we're all, it's, life comes down to sales and I hate to break it to all of us, right? It's the only thing that they don't teach you in business school because it's even too much of a stigma for that. Everyone looks down upon sales as this like sort of salesy, sleazy, whatever. But in fact, you're always selling. As an entrepreneur, you're selling your idea to prospective employees, to investors, to customers. You're then reselling to employees to keep them engaged. And when something doesn't work, you're reselling the vision to keep them engaged even further. And similarly, as an artist, you're constantly selling a narrative. You're telling a narrative. You're explaining. You're providing context. You're helping people understand. And to do that in a very very true and consistent way. Um, is part of the deal. And if you're not signing up for that, then, you know, don't have higher expectations for yourself. Yeah. I like that term, merchandising your story. Talking about sort of entrepreneurship and artists, I mean, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, are things are there things that you've seen sort of that play off of each other that you think entrepreneurs could learn from sort of creatives or artists and vice versa? I mean, of course, some creatives are entrepreneurs, but in the sort of broader sense. Yeah, and I would argue that every... I think everyone who's trying to create something and then get it out to the world that's new is sort of an entrepreneur to some extent. Yeah, I I, uh, I think there are some modern practices in the uh, in the world of entrepreneurship and especially technology that we all need to learn from. Like for example, the notion of getting out a minimum viable product and getting something out faster and getting feedback for it and whatever else, showing work in process. I think a lot of artists don't like to reveal anything before it's fully polished and ready to go. Mm -hmm. But engaging people in the process you go through is part of merchandising that narrative, is Mm -hmm. part of the storytelling and the the sales, if you will. Um, So opening up and questioning our norms, making us feel uncomfortable and improving our processes. Mm -hmm. The other thing that uh, I think artists would benefit from is not only trying to improve their skills and, and perspective as an artist, but also their operations uh, and A-B testing their own operations. So um, do I have, uh, do I schedule myself in my studio in, in mornings or in evenings, or do I take meetings or do I do this or do I do that? I mean, whatever schedule you have or whatever practices you have, don't ascribe to that notion of don't fix it if it ain't broken, because mm-hmm. that's not how you become great. How you become great is you take anything that is sort of working for you and just keep iterating it to make it even better, especially if it's a process. And again, that's something I just don't think many artists do. 
but many great entrepreneurs are religious about it. I want to take a quick break to tell you more about our Patreon page. As you know, here at State of the Art, we want to build the art and tech community, increase the conversation, and we love bringing you guests from across the art and tech world. But the thing is, there's so much more we want to do. We want to continue to bring you great guests. We want to do live podcasts. We want to increase the frequency. To do that, though, we need your support. Visit our page at patreon.com slash state of the art. Pledge just a dollar and you'll get access to exclusive content, behind the scenes footage, and a chance to be our super fan of the week. And let me tell you, this is pretty cool. Super fans will get a shout out on next week's episode and a chance to show your art and tech thoughts, events, or whatever within our social feeds. So go to patreon.com slash state of the art and become one of our patrons today. Now back to the episode. I like one thing you talked about is where you have different playlists for different uh, activities that you do and that you are very religious about only doing it. Like you talked talk about music. So you only have a song that you, you played while you were writing. And it had been like five years since you wrote your first book. And, and that's just like, a hack, right? Yeah. Because I'm just trying to incentivize myself to do certain things that I find difficult. Yeah. And I think one way to do that is preserving certain music that you only get to listen to at certain times. <laughs> are there any other hacks you have, food related or? Yeah. I mean, are there little hacks that I would use, uh, that- especially during writing, which I find very difficult? Yeah. I enjoy it, but I also find it just, especially with a schedule, it's just like hard to fit in time to think. Yeah. And uh and if you preserve certain special things, right, only for those times. But I think the bigger picture here is that um you can't just kind of live life at the mercy of circumstance and expect yourself to get certain things done. Yeah. You have to hack yourself and the and play little games in order to keep yourself engaged and on schedule and uh and and you have to do the same thing with your teams. Yeah. I liked one thing you, you talked about, I think in a 99U speech you gave where i mean you were talking about a product but i was even thinking from an artist perspective or the art world where it's like you know you need to have something that's sophisticated enough for your power users but accessible for everybody yeah um and i think that's something with artists in the art world that is a huge challenge and if you think about the art world as a product in itself is how do you have something you know someone put it well where it's like you know there is uh serious art should be taken seriously so if it's a collectible item but at the same time, it's like, you know, it should be okay to create, I mean, folk art or fun art or things that, you know, the rest of us might find more accessible. Well, I think that um, it's, you know, that's one of my doctrines in product, which is to make things that are powerful enough for professionals, but accessible to everyone. Yeah. And I think that to some extent, to your point, applies to every discipline, which mm-hmm. is, is it okay to make something that's relevant to a different audience? Is it okay to I mean, from a business perspective, we call that market expansion. Mm-hmm. Is there something that you're doing that can appeal to new audiences, not just from a commercial perspective, but also just from a learning perspective? Remember, every piece of new work you do for a different audience, you get different types of feedback. You learn different things. You are exposed to some of those edges in your own work that may become the center for future types of work that you do. And you just have to be open to that. I love versatile artists that are willing to take those risks. You know, you have a 
artist that does something that's very provocative and mature and whatever, and then you see them come out with a children's book. Yeah. And it's like, okay, like I respect that. This person is pushing their own boundaries. They don't give a shit what anyone thinks of their reputation or they're not so fragile about it. They are exploring, you know, and they'll explore in any direction. They'll go crazy in that way and then they'll go crazy in the other way. Because when you're doing that, you're just exposing yourself to the surface area of discovery and accidents and opportunities that ultimately make a career more successful. Yeah. Huh. He talked about, um, you know, also from sort of a product perspective, not always, um, you know, not always listening to the data, you know, on, on everything, because like to push the boundaries, you can't just listen to the average. You need to, you know, trust your instinct. And you, you know, you said about an artist who's taking that first brush stroke. Um, but then, you know, the, the sort of, after you do that, the, the difficulty that lies, right. Which is, you can have that fresh, new, exciting brush stroke and then you know, you, the hard work comes, so you want to do another one or a new idea. Um, but now, I mean, you're starting to talk more about this middle area. I mean, tell me more about that and like the challenges of the, of the middle. Sure. On the middle side, I mean, quickly on the data side, yeah. you know, I think, you know, the point there that I would just make is that you can't listen too much to, to what the world wants, right? Yeah. Else you'll always kind of go down to the lowest common denominator yep. and you'll always be reduced, or which is mean. why I hate focus groups, right? Yeah. Um, focus groups measure what's familiar. And so if you do want to understand what about your product or service people will resonate most with, maybe that's fine for a focus group. But if you want to innovate, a focus group will do the opposite. It will show you what people are familiar with and therefore uh, give you negative indicators around anything that's new, yeah. even if it's great. So that's on that note. But you asked about the middle. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, the middle is something I'm super passionate about and uh, and have spent the last few years actually on this project interviewing a lot of different people from different industries and walks of life about middles, uh, their, their big projects, their adventures or ventures, and how they overcame this middle ground where they were working in complete anonymity, ambiguity, no end in sight, no reward, no credit. You know, how did they endure these very massive lulls in in a project? And also how did they optimize like hell anything that was actually working? And that to me is like the 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 trick of the middle, right? Is to both endure and optimize hmm. to get to some form of finish. Uh and this is actually going to be, you know, this book that I'm coming out with in October of 2018 is going to be, you know, taking a lot of this into account and hopefully synthesizing it. But uh, the takeaways that I had were a few. Mm -hmm. One is we actually don't like to remember our own middles Mm -hmm. because we're not proud of them. We were sideways and we made mistakes and we just kind of want to gloss over it. And it's actually quite a blur if you try to really think back I mean, for me, these were the five years before we were venture-backed as a company where we were just bootstrapping. There were a few of what I call the lost years of Behance, where I just think we were just kept rewriting the, the same old years. thing, you know, and and we weren't really net creating anything. We were just yeah. kind of figuring it out and staying alive. Um, there were benefits, though, to that middle that we were able to maximize, but uh, it was very difficult. And yeah. it really took me kind of, you know, a lot of reflection to deduce what I got out of those years yeah, um, and what my team got out of them as well. 
So I, but I, um, it's you, funny. Let me ask, do you think that p- this passion has come in like this focus on the middles because you focus so much? I mean, I, I read your last book on kind of like, you know, the formation or getting, you know, sticking, finding a point and then sticking to it enough, you know, having that organization that then you felt like, okay, the evolution, the natural evolution of that is sort of the middle. Yeah, I think so. And I think it was also, again, out of frustration, which yeah. tends to be my source of inspiration. But uh, the frustration in this case was how much everyone is obsessed with the starts and finishes. I mean, every headline that you read is basically about the beginning of something or the end of something. Yeah. Whether the end is a great, uh, you know, success like an IPO or an acquisition or a great piece of art being bought for a super high price, or if it's a failure of someone just going out of business or someone, you know, bankruptcy, ten million dollars, right? Yeah. Whatever it is, um, and uh, and it's just the sensationalism has swept over the world of innovation, and as a result, we actually get a really twisted sense of the journeys of people that we look up to. We think that they were just these linear, progressive, you know, steps towards a great outcome when in fact they were extraordinarily volatile. And yeah. so that's what the the study and book try to disclaim. And what I try to do is just equip, I want, I want to help outfit people for their middles. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you make the most? How do you endure and how do you optimize? And uh, and also how do you internalize the notion that you're never really finished? Yeah. What? So, I mean, are they, what, I guess, what, what are some of the things that came from that or so far that you can share? Yeah, I think on the endure side, you know, a lot of it is about short-circuiting that reward system we talked yeah. about earlier and, and to keep yourself engaged and those hacks, that sort of thing. I think part of it is also to know you're not alone. Yeah. Um, I think part of it is is to use the stress and the stretch of those down very volatile periods mm-hmm. to build the capability um, that you know just makes you stronger and gives you better instincts and judgment and like guts and whatever else. Um, and uh, and so there's a lot there. And then on the optimized side, there uh, I, I do think a lot about like specifically optimizing your product, you know, based on what you're learning from it, um, but also optimizing the way that you work and the way that your team works and the way that you're leading. Mm-hmm. Um, I think these are all areas of insights that we just need to internalize for ourselves, but it helps to hear like what other people went through yeah. um, to uh, to get there. One of the other things I, I I learned was just how much success comes down to sticking together long enough to figure it out. Yeah. Or, or persisting long enough to figure it out. If you're an artist or a solo, a soloist of some kind, there is something to be said for that. Now, the question I often get then is, well, how do you know if you should quit? or whether you should stick with it. I mean, it's easy to say, Scott, don't ever quit, but that's not always the right answer. And that's exactly right, actually. I think that when you have lost conviction in the end state, if you really start to believe that the idea you're working on, if you don't believe that it's actually right the way you thought it was before, if you're less excited about it, you should quit. However, if you're three years in and you're working in anonymity and ambiguity and you know, and you're, you're just tired and exhausted, and your team is fatigued, but if you still have as much, if not more conviction in that end state that you want to make happen, mm-hmm. you must stick with it. Like that is status quo for, yeah. um, for building something great. And, and I think that's another, you know, big insight that I took away. Yeah. And I love what you talk about there. I mean, it, you know, in some ways it's just continuing to learn and evolving things that you can control. And, you know, most of the time, like our to-do lists are just sort of tactical things, but not necessarily like leadership or team or cultural things. And so, 
sounds like maybe adding some of those to your to-do list, which is making sure that you continue to be a better leader or... I think that's true. And we, we consider these things soft things that don't yeah. matter. But at the end of the day, great things are made by people who know how to motivate others, you know, and know yeah. how to tell that story. It's like all of that stuff outside of the core. My thesis has always been all that stuff adds up to something more potentially than the core itself. Mm. And that's just a very controversial thing to say, especially for someone in the creative world who thinks that their creativity actually is what matters most. And sometimes I'm thinking, actually, no, like ideas are basically worthless. Um, if you don't have like all of the stuff around the edges, all added up and constantly being optimized. So yeah, to your point, building that culture, iterating it, mm. building leaders. I always try to ground myself as, as busy as I think I should, as I am, and as protective as I of my time as I am, like I still have to meet great new people, mm-hmm. and I have to be learning, I have to be recruiting, and uh, and and there's just no shortcut to that stuff. Yeah, and evolving, like you talked about, even you know meetings don't have the same meaning just because you had it last week, or even like conversations. I liked how you said the people who even you're friends with, but like also at work, it's like you want to make sure that the conversation continues to evolve. So in a work setting, literally stuff gets done, and we're not just circling back. But in a personal setting, so that you know you continue to sort of build deeper friendships and and learn more from those around you. Yeah, I think the uh, I think there's you know I think you're leading to some of the sort of principles that are, you know I've I, I feel pretty strongly about when it comes to building a team that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, you know, to to expand on that, uh, one of the litmus tests for me has always been you know people that I work with. Or, or might want to work with, does every conversation with them become a step function more interesting than the one before it? Yeah. Or do I feel like it's just kind of, we're going over the same old stuff again and again and again. So that is one litmus test I have. Yeah. And I think as a as, as someone navigating a career, you know, we should all kind of did, start to figure out our own principles. Mm-hmm. What I like to do is when something really works out, I like to look at it afterwards and think, you know, what were the, what were the telltales? What are the things that reveal themselves early on like for example, when I um when I met the team that started Periscope, mm-hmm. which was something before else before I I first started working with them, but what I loved is that every discussion with them was always more fascinating. It opened more doors and took us to another level, and and I just felt like, gosh, you know, that is a that feels really good to me. Yeah, and so that's why I tried to go in deep with them, both making it one of the biggest investments I ever made that was in a company I wasn't a co-founder of. But also just working deeply with them, going to product reviews, being in Slack channels, that sort of thing. And uh, and as I look back on what was a good sign for that business being a successful product and ultimately being acquired and having an impact in the whole world of live streaming, for example, to me it was you know back to the nature of those conversations and those relationships that I was building with those yeah. with those founders. I like that because it, it makes you know investors often say they look at the team. Which I'm not sure I always even believe that, but even then, sometimes that's you know it's it's a little abstract. But that you know that's a more tangible kind of metric of does the conversation progress every time? Yeah, um, I like that. Where do you see the creative space going? I mean, you're obviously a big part of it. You're at Adobe driving it, but even in a broader context, like what do you think the future of the creative economy is? Are there any trends that you're interested in? Um, well, macro, yeah, macro. There is no more important world right now than the creative world for, yeah. for, for humanity. I mean, think about it. Uh, more and more is being automated. Labor is being commoditized. Machines are so much more efficient at 
most of the things that we do manually today. But the one uniquely human thing is creativity. Mm -hmm. Machines are geared to not focus on the edges. They're focused, the machines are really focused on automating and making things more productive. And so actually, I think that artificial intelligence will have a huge role in creativity, largely reducing all the mundane kind of bullshit, repetitive stuff that we have to do in our creative process. Yeah. So if anything, I think creativity, creative people will be able to be more creative in the future because all of that other stuff will essentially be off their plate mm -hmm. and they'll be able to do real added value, genuinely new creative stuff um, with their time. So that's really exciting to me. I look at that from tools like Photoshop and Illustrator and others that I'm responsible for. And I'm thinking, okay, like what's the next generation of those products look like and how do those products incorporate things like artificial intelligence to make people more productive with their creativity? Yeah. Um, I also think that um, art and design, there are going to be entirely new interfaces you know, in the future that we haven't really thought of as much about and there are big implications for those interfaces. Like for example, voice interfaces, augmented reality experiences where in both instances, you're not going to look at many, many options. You're going to look at one best option or you're going to hear one best option. Mm. And uh, I mean, think about it. If you ask Alexa something today on your Amazon device, um, like I need to buy batteries, it suggests one battery option to choose from. Yeah, And most people will just take the default. So I actually think that... Um, that the future of creativity is also about how to make interfaces informative, how to make sure that they present default options that are actually the best option rather than the most highly paid for option. I mean, there's a whole series of challenges that are going to have to be solved by designers and artists and new mediums that we're going to have to play with that get me so excited. But they are they are also going to have big big questions to answer. Yeah, yeah. With AI, I'm I'm not as excited about sort of the AI created art, but more what you talked about the mundane and helping, you know, helping creators create and, and also the education piece. Like, I think there's a lot that can be done with the AI. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the sort day, of feedback and art is soulful, right? Yeah. You know, art is human and sure there will be, there was always digital art um, in terms of automated, whatever. I mean, I remember when I was little playing with those spinners where you drop in paint, it would make these amazing designs yeah. and they're beautiful, but there's no soul in them. Yeah. And I think that uh, in some ways, as technology progresses, certain human things become more of a competitive advantage. I mean, I think a perfect example of that is disconnection. Right now, we are always connected. We are always looking at our phones, walking between meetings. We are connected. We are pecking away at our, the collective inboxes in our lives. And uh, and even you know now in the planes we have Wi-Fi and everything else we are constantly oh, that was connected. I know I did not want Wi-Fi. Could I, have been like the last frontier of sacred space for I, deep thinking. I, I used to live in in Abu Dhabi in the Middle East, and so I'd take these thirteen and seventeen hour flights. Were they and I, amazing? And I, they were amazing. Yeah, they were lightning. red and you know watch TV. Stand. And we wonder why the shower is such a source of creativity. It's just because we're forced to disconnect. Yeah. And now we have like shower media centers and stuff like that. Oh gosh. So I actually think that disconnection is going to become a competitive advantage yeah. in, in, in humanity. Like literally people who force themselves to disconnect and think will be at an advantage over those who don't. Yeah. And also those who create and capitalize on uniquely human processes will be at an advantage over those that don't. And so that's the thing. When we get scared of AI and technology and whatever else, we have to remember that sometimes 
the uniquely human stuff ends up commanding a premium as a result. And uh, and the world is interesting. Like the pendulum has a way of swinging both sides. It does. Yeah, that's great. That's a good good note to end. But before I let you go, this is too much fun. I could, I could talk all day. Can I do a quick rapid fire with you? Quick rapid fire. Let's do it. All right. Favorite thing about living, working in San, Fran- San Francisco and in New York? Because you <laughs> well, commute back and forth. You know, San Francisco is passive aggressive. Yeah. People don't like to confront each other. There's this sort of smile and and move on. And, you know, if, if your neighbor is pissed, they will, uh, they will anonymously call the cops or whatever. Oh, I don't gosh. know. I'm just making that up. But yeah. there is sort of like this different culture. Yeah. Whereas in New York, everyone's just aggressive. You yeah. know, there's nothing passive about it. Um, I actually like the uh, balance of both cultures from a creativity perspective, from an entrepreneur perspective, from the different industries represented in different places. There's obviously more diversity in New York. Mm-hmm. It's truly international. There's always a million things going on. Um, dinner starts at 9 p.m., whereas in San Francisco, <laughs> not much going on past 9 p.m. No. Oh, gosh. So I actually like the differences, and you know, and, and uh, I, I don't have a favorite. I just like actually the uh, the clashes. Okay. What uh? What's your most played song on Spotify right now? My goodness, on Spotify, I am probably playing. Um, I have like some meditation mixes okay. that, I'm, that I'm playing with. So there's some like interesting Paul like chant type stuff. Yeah, Gregorian chants. Exactly. All right, I like that. What's uh? If you could have a superpower, what would it be and why? Not having to sleep. All right, I find sleep very humbling because I, I love working at night. Yeah, and uh, and I just can't con- I can't keep up with it. It would be amazing to get an extra, you know, eight or nine hours, especially where I could focus on stuff on my own. That's what amazing. we've never gotten that. That's what my favorite. My the other one we got that I liked was to be able to speak every language. That'd be cool. Oh, um, I love that too. Do you have a favorite quote right now? Umberto Eco: "To be done is to die." Beautiful. You know, keeping that keeping that to do list thriving and busy. <laughs> There we go. Scott, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. Cool. Thanks for having me. So don't forget, follow Scott on Twitter and Instagram at Scott Belsky or via his website, scottbelsky.com. Tune in next week when we bring you our live art and tech panel from the Battery Conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it. Leaving a review is super easy and it helps listeners like you discover the podcast. Oh yeah, and don't forget to check us out at State of the Art on Twitter for behind-the-scenes photos, a sneak peek to next week's episode, and really cool art videos you're going to want to show your friends. Until next week, this is your host, Ethan Appleby, signing off from State of the Art.